As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Katrina, Ferguson, Oak Creek. In America, a local tragedy can spark a national conversation. But what happens after the national news cycle moves on? I'm Ziba Blay, and this is I'm Still Here, a HuffPost podcast. Hey guys, like we said last week, we're doing something a little different today. Instead of a new episode of I'm Still Here, we're running an episode from another HuffPost podcast called Candidate Confessional. It's a show about tough defeats. And on this episode, hosts Sam Stein and Jason Turkus spoke to Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. They spoke to him about the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, the tragedy which took place in Murphy's old district in 2012, fundamentally changed him and his career. But it didn't change gun laws. From season two of Candidate Confessional, how one senator found his calling in the wake of tragedy. A few months ago, in response to too many tragedies, including the shootings of a United States Congresswoman, Gabby Gifford, who's here today, and the murder of 20 innocent school children and their teachers, this country took up the cause of protecting more of our people from gun violence. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Candidate Confessional. I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And what you're hearing here is a Rose Garden press conference that Barack Obama gave way, way back in April of 2013. The occasion was the failure of a bill that would have expanded background checks on gun purchases, a bill that had been crafted in response to one of the worst mass shootings in U.S. history. When Newtown happened, I met with these families and I spoke to the community and I said, something must be different right now. We're going to have to change. Four months earlier, at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut, a gunman had murdered 20 children and six adults. The Virginia Tech shooting in 2007 had been deadlier, but the psychic shock of the fact that the victims here were mostly six- and seven-year-olds made Newtown different. But it hadn't been enough to motivate Congress to change gun laws. The bill was watered down and watered down and watered down. And finally, it died in the Senate. So all in all, this was a pretty shameful day for Washington. Washington. 
On this episode of Canada Confessional, we're going to do something a little different. Today's guest has never known electoral defeat, but he faced a major legislative defeat that year. We are about to hit the one-year mark since the tragic shooting in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. 2013 was Chris Murphy's first year in the Senate. Newtown was part of the congressional district he had represented while in the House. And over the course of the fight over this bill, Murphy transformed into probably the leading Democrat on gun control issues at the national level. It should be a source of great embarrassment to the United States Senate and the House of Representatives that we have not moved the ball forward one inch when it comes to the issue of protecting the thousands of people all across this country who are killed by guns every year. Today... We talk with the senator about how he found his voice on this issue and how he dealt with the most stinging defeat of his political career. Welcome to Candidate Confessional. The story starts back in December of 2012. Chris Murphy had just been elected to the Senate, defeating Linda McMahon. He was getting ready to take office, and on the morning of December 14th, he was standing on a train platform in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Um, you know, it started out as a great day for me. We were announcing a big economic development project in Bridgeport, and then I was taking the rest of the day off. I was going to go down to New York City with my kids, who at the time were uh, four and one, and my wife, and we were going to see sort of the Christmas splendor of Manhattan. And I was sitting on a train platform um, in Bridgeport, waiting for the uh, for the train to arrive when I got a call from the head of my Connecticut office telling me that there had been a shooting. Police are responding to a report of a school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. They say it happened at Sandy Hook Elementary just before 10 o'clock this morning. Which just sounded wild to me, and my first assumption was that it was you know, a workplace shooting, you know, an, an adult shooting another adult. And so I was still planning on getting on the train because I, my, my four-year-old especially was just so excited to go. I didn't want to miss it. And then you know, literally maybe five minutes before the train was to leave, I got the second phone call that uh, noticed that kids were involved. Twenty children were among the total of 26 dead. Uh, we do not have final figures either, Jenna. All of this obviously... Uh, I turned around, got in the car. Um, it was very traumatic for my kids who were planning on doing this. Uh, um, but I explained to them, you know, the basic outlines of what I had to do to my four-year-old. And got in a car, went up to the firehouse, which is where the emergency response was happening. And um, that's about a 40-minute 40, 40 drive? 40-minute 40 40 drive. And so on the drive, we got the full scope of what was happening. And you come to this, I mean, there's no way to sort of come to a understanding of it. But these things that you had read about and watched on TV was now happening. And, you know, by the time we got there, the reports had confirmed that this was over 20 kids. Um, and, um, you know, it was impossible to understand the scope of it. And, 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 then, when, and then we got there at the worst possible time. Um, we got there um, basically just at the moment that the— What's the scene like in the uh, So the firehouse? scene is chaotic um, you know, because this is the, the kids all— the firehouse is right next to the school. Um, so this is where all of the kids came to and it's where all the parents came to pick up their kids. And so you have to imagine the scene in which um, there are uh, hundreds of parents waiting for their kids and then there are 40 parents, right? And so all the kids and parents have left and then there are only 40 parents left and they're starting to hear the same reports that we are and they're starting – and they're looking at each other realizing that it's all parents of – first graders and that there's some um, there's something that's happened. Um, the state police wanted to um, identify all of the 
children before the parents were told, but it was becoming macabre that all these parents were sitting there not getting any information. And so, um, so I got there right at the moment that the governor made the decision to tell the parents. So what are you doing at this point? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, you know, I, I'm there, um, you know, helping make sure that the support services that need to be there are there, right? So, you know, offering my help to try to reach out to experts in the field. Um, I'm starting to receive calls from other members of Congress who have been through this. Um, you really? Know, yeah, who are calling and saying, Here's what I did. Um, Who called you? So I remember, um, so Michael Bennett called. Um, Ed, I had a long conversation with Ed Perlmutter, who is the congressman from Aurora. Um, and Ed said, you know, listen, you're going to feel some reticence to do press. He said, it's not, it's not going to feel right to go out and speak in front of the cameras about this. He's like, but my advice is that you need to be in Sandy Hook every single day. So you just need to be there. And you're going to feel kind of that, there's not a lot to do, but your presence is going to be important. And, and, and months and years from now, people will be comforted by the fact that you were there. And second, do press because it'll take pressure off of the community. It'll take pressure off of the families to do it. So you do it and you be their voice. And so I struggled with that and didn't do interviews um, for the first 24, uh, 48 hours. But I eventually you know, did a lot of them because of that advice. I think we should step back a second and, and talk about where you were as a politician because you're just elected to the Senate. You weren't point. even sworn in. I was in between, yeah. Being so, I was the congressperson yeah. from that yeah. district, right? But yeah, I'm. So you have this. So you have um, a you know of Elizabeth Esty who had just been elected, but who has not been sworn in. You had Joe Lieberman who was technically the senator but was leaving. So yeah, it was a major moment of transition in terms of the the federal political leadership there. I don't think people quite understand what Newtown, the town of Newtown is, right? It's this sort of New England idyllic bucolic town. It's a very pretty place. It's very quiet. If you go there, it seems, I don't know, very calm when I was there. But can you describe what it's like for the listener? Yeah. I mean, it is the quintessential New England village. You go to the downtown of Newtown, which folks you know now know. Sandy Hook is a village of Newtown, sure. so we sort of refer to them as the same. Um, you know, it has a giant flagpole with the American flag in the middle of the street that you have to drive around. Um, right next to it is the old meeting hall and the white congregational church. Um, they got you know, a general store. They got a general <laughs> store. They have the one big Labor Day parade in the state where every Newtown, you know, school group and brownie troop comes out and marches. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, why it was such an implausible place because it is such a slow, quiet place. Um, you just would have never imagined that something like this could have happened. Did you talk to the families that first day? Did you reach out to them? And what, what do you sort of – what did you sort of take from – for you that first day, that memory that still, that still lingers with you? I, so that first day, um, you know, the families didn't stick around as you can imagine. Once they, you know, received word of what happened, um, almost all of them left. Um, and, and I won't get this memory totally correct, uh, but um, I remember one parent staying um, and, and that was Neil Heslin. So Neil and his wife were split up 
Jesse Lewis was his son. And um, I just remember this solitary figure who sat at one of these tables who never left. And I eventually went up and talked to him. Um, he didn't have much to say. He just literally couldn't move. And I don't know that he had much of a place to go home to. I think he lived on his own um, and had had some tough times in, in his life. Neil eventually became one of the spokesmen for this, this cause and gave one of the most moving pieces of testimony before the Judiciary Committee when this whole thing played out. But I just remember watching him not leave and, and assuming that he was one of the parents and not knowing whether he wanted someone to talk to um, or not um, and just feeling like – like there was no way for anyone to understand this grief. For, for Neil, it meant that he physically couldn't move. Um, and, and to think that every other family was going through this in their own way. You know, we – this is maybe skipping ahead a little bit. But we went to um, the first wake um, and it was um, Grace McDonald's wake. And I was standing with Senator Blumenthal. And – I was so nervous about what to say to these parents when we got, you know, up to them. And um, Senator Blumenthal said, Dick said, um, hey, listen, whenever you're ready to talk to us about action, about doing something right, about what our response should be, we're ready. And um, the parents said, we're ready right now. So the idea was already in the air that there might be some sort of pushing Congress over gun laws in the wake of Newtown. It was more of a question of when. But of course, the politics around mass shootings are tricky. The moment politicians start talking about gun control, a familiar refrain appears in the media. And some lawmakers are already politicizing the tragedy in Colorado by calling for stricter gun control laws. Is the timing appropriate? The argument over gun control versus gun rights ignited between politicians. Is it too soon? And Murphy told us that at the time of the shooting, even he had some doubts about whether it was right to talk about the politics so soon. I now have become convinced, right, that you don't wait, that you talk about policy immediately um, because that's when people are paying attention. But at that point, we didn't know if that was inappropriate. And pretty quickly that week, um, you know, we figured out that our utility was going to be being their spokesman in terms of policy sure. changes. At what point was it clear that there would be this legislative push? And it's also really daunting that you have a sort of strategy, OK, how am I going to tackle this issue? And what did you sort of strategize with the parents in terms of handling that? Well, you know, r- rewind a little bit there because I um, I had never worked on this issue. I mean, frankly, I hadn't cared too much about it. I'm embarrassed to say that now, but um, you know, I represented a swing district in Connecticut. I had come of political age when you were taught to stay away from this issue. I remember when I'd be asked about, you know, when a when sort of a Second Amendment supporter would ask me about my positions on guns, I remember my answer. My answer was, well, you know, we really really shouldn't focus on the gun. We should focus on the reasons why the person pulls the trigger. I mean, I gave a That's an know, NRA. Yeah, I gave an NRA answer, right? And and um, and I'm so embarrassed by that now uh, because I, I didn't understand the full scope of it. I mean, if you'd asked me how many people died in America from gun violence um, before Newtown, I would have told you a couple dozen. I had no idea of the scope and how terrible that I didn't. Um, so, you know, I had this tremendous education that had to happen in those weeks about the scope of the problem, about the power of the NRA. My eyes opened. Um, and then I'll, t- I'll tell you one, one really transformative moment is um, – Maybe two or three weeks later, um, I get asked to come to the north end of Hartford to do a community roundtable there. 
And this is a place where there's regular gun violence where, um, you know, kids are living in fear every single day. And um, the, the families and the advocates there are furious, furious, right? A lot of compassion for what happened in Newtown, but they don't understand why it was this that caused me to care about this issue um, when they've been going through it for years and years and years. And that was when I sort of stepped back and said, my God, you know, this is, this is, this was something that I should have been focused on a long time ago. And now I got to learn a lot about it very quickly. When you talk to like your colleagues from Colorado or uh, sites of previous mass shootings, did they ever explain why it was that new, I mean, Newtown obviously was kinder, it was first graders, uh, but was, what was the explanation for why none of those previous mass shootings had moved people or moved legislators to make that push? Yeah, I, I I think it's not terribly complicated. I think there is something so psychologically disruptive um, about six and seven-year-olds and the scale of it um, that it is not comparable um, to those previous tragedies from a from an emotional standpoint. And I also think you know we started talking about assault weapons um, because you know there was this uh, there's this this story of the weapon. Um, so, you know, people sort of noticed that there wasn't a single kid who survived, right? Every single kid who got shot by that weapon died. Why? Because it is designed to kill. And this, the story of the kids who escaped while the shooter was reloading, right, because he only – and he, but he only had to reload a few times. There was this unique story about the military-grade weapon that translated here in a way that didn't translate in prior shootings. When we come back, the legislative push for tougher gun control begins in earnest. Welcome back. When we left, pressure was building for some sort of legislative push on gun control. And even before he was inaugurated for his second term as president... Barack Obama made it clear that this was going to be a priority. In the wake of the Newtown shootings, President Obama now says gun regulation will be, quote, a central issue of his second term. We know this is a complex issue that stirs deeply held passions and political divides. And as I said on Sunday night, uh, there's no law or set of laws that can prevent every senseless act of violence in our society. We're going to need to work on making access to mental health care at least as easy as access to a gun. The White House signaled quickly that they were going to do something legislatively. What was the sense of optimism uh, about getting something done legislatively in those early days? I mean, so it was it was unbridled optimism in the sense that, you know, you, if you remember, you know, Mark Warner goes on TV that weekend. Bob Casey goes on TV that weekend. You know, Democrats who had been a raided by the NRA saying um, not just remember at that point, we're not talking about background checks. At that point, we're talking about assault weapons, right? We're talking about a ban on assault weapons and a ban on high capacity magazines. And so in those early weeks, you, I, I wasn't thinking about the issue of background checks in part because that didn't really – that wasn't relevant to Sandy Hook. It was relevant to what was happening in Hartford. I was thinking about assault weapons and high-capacity magazines and that felt absolutely achievable. Of course, remember, we get shaken to our core a week after Sandy Hook on Friday as I'm walking out of – same same, same young girl – out of Grace McDonald's funeral. Um, 
I get notice of Wayne LaPierre's speech that Friday. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. I call on Congress today to act immediately to appropriate whatever is necessary to put armed police officers in every single school in this nation. So we got a sense pretty quickly that this was a big fight. But even then, you know, it seemed like we were marching towards something significant. Did you expect different from Wayne LaPierre? Honestly. Or did you underestimate the NRA? Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I I think a big part of the story is an underestimation of their political power. And, 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 you know, as we get into it... um, a misunderstanding of of how important it is to have a political organization on your side, which we didn't have. Um, but no, I did. I was surprised by that statement. I because remember the in the wake of Columbine, um, Wayne Lapierre came to Congress and testified in favor of universal background checks. And so there there was this history of them sort of understanding the moment, the need to move. And you know this was the first moment in which they adopted this new strategy that they have, which is just dig in deeper every single time that there's um, a call for change. And it just didn't seem like it was going to work to me. Now, well, yeah, well, there's two ways to interpret the Wayne LaPierre moment from a political standpoint. One is that it's so out there that it might actually help, that people would look at it and say, that's crazy, including some Republicans. And the other is that, oh boy, if the NRA is not going to support this, then we're in serious trouble. What was your, what was your mindset? I I was worried uh, because I, I thought that that our path forward was to, you know, potentially get something that the gun lobby could agree to because I had seen because I by that time knew that they had been in favor of background checks in the past, so. I, and I, you know, I also knew that you know this was a big deal for Democrats to break with them. I, you know, I of course I'd taken note of the fact that the NRA stamp of approval had become a proxy for something beyond just your position on guns. It was a way for Democrats and Republicans to convey how conservative they were. So I knew it was going to be a big deal to beat them. So um, no, I think I was more more worried than anything else that Friday that um, we were in for a fight that I maybe wasn't anticipating. Were you at that point? Starting to do intel, like maybe reach out to sort of uh, NRA friendly uh, members of the Senate or Congress, just to see you know what what their reaction was to the speech, or just to other Democrats to say, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to succeed? And who did you reach out to? And what yeah. was their advice? Well, I mean, remember this is a weird time for me because I'm not. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't, met, I haven't met. I thought they my <laughs> colleagues yet. So yeah. I've I'm I, everybody's heading off for Christmas vacation, right? I haven't been, this is after the sort of orientation. So, you know, I I just, I was in a moment where, um, you know, I was still needing to introduce myself to others. The handbook was still not more. Yeah, right. Never mind, never never mind persuade them. So, yeah, it was, it was hard for me to get a temperature on folks. Harry Reid did not take your call. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Harry, remember, listen, there's a whole other podcast on Harry's transformation on this issue, right? I mean, um, because Harry became, you know, and especially as that two-year period of time went on, um, Harry became the cheerleader for all of this in the in the caucus. But um, no, I certainly you know talked to Harry about it. I talked to Chuck, but um, it was difficult for me to start lobbying before I got there. But the big the big uh, question was where do you how do you make this happen? Is this something that the committees are going to do, or are you going to have the White House uh, put together a package of proposals? And it becomes clear pretty quickly that the White House is going to do this whatever you want to call it, a, a study, a group, a commission. commission. Um, was Were you okay with that? I mean, did you think that was a smart move? Because the tension was 
quickly became about the timing of this. I worried. Um, in part because, you know, up until then, there wasn't a lot of history that White House-led processes led to legislation being passed, right? That was yeah. not necessarily the model. Um, even, you know, the healthcare reform bill ultimately re really was driven by, um, you know, by congressional processes. So um, it, it certainly worried me that we weren't going to figure out how to be, how to get from A to B to C if this came out of the, uh, out of the White House. Um, but, you know, I, I had confidence in the Senate that Schumer was in charge. And at that point, you know, Schumer you know, has a reputation of somebody who was both a brawler and somebody that could get stuff done. He had been the face of background checks. He had gotten the assault weapons um, uh, ban done with Feinstein the first time around. So this felt like something uh, that at least had the right players in charge. But no, it made me a little nervous that the White House was claiming ownership of this because uh, at least my experience was that's not how things got done. Did you also get a sense that there were other Democrats who might not have been as as into this issue as you as you were, I mean, or you know, you you came from that area. You're from Connecticut. You have this all this passion. You're talking to the families regularly, and then you meet a Democrat maybe from another part of the country. Maybe it's not as immediate to them. And I'm wondering if that's something that you also had to deal with. Yeah, no, um, you, you certainly you know had a variety of level of concern here. But I, but I'll tell you, in those early days, Democrats seemed to be ready to roll on this, right? So the, the families start to come down and start to make their visits and you get readouts of how positive those meetings are. You get readouts of how positive the meetings are with Republicans, right? I mean, early on, the Sandy Hook families who were most active were just absolutely convinced that Marco Rubio was going to be 100% with them because every interaction he had with them, you know, was, was incredibly positive. There was a connection. And of course, there was no way that was going to happen. But um, early on, there was just a sense, especially because these meetings um, that were happening right, were so emotional uh, that that that, that and you we had and you place. had Joe Manchin, who was like who was likely to be the one Democrat who wasn't going to support Correct. something, become the public face, and of he it. shot and, the and, Obamacare. Yeah, and the, so and, yeah, the, and, the, and the Democrats that eventually voted no were really quiet, right? So they weren't. I wasn't having conversations with Baucus or with Heidkamp in which they were telling me, "Hey, I'm not going to be there." They just were very conspicuously quiet on this. And the Republicans that we thought we might have, people like Murkowski and Flake, the same thing. They weren't giving off any signals in January and February that year that they weren't going to be with us. And at that point, the momentum seemed to be heading in a way that might sweep yeah. them so all So then up. the question is timing. And when the VP's office is putting together this commission report, um, are you getting anxious as it's taking too long? Yeah, it, it's... It's certainly taking a long time um, and it feels like this is a moment that you have to capture. At that point, you're starting to figure out that you've got an enormous imbalance of political power, right? So the NRA at that point is driving calls, um, is showing up at town halls. The, the more radical conservative groups um, uh, like Gun Owners of America you know, are, are engaged. And we really have nothing on our side, right? We've got the, the sort of organic level of concern drops off and there's no place for it to plug in, right? Today when a shooting happens and you want to become active, you can plug in to Moms Demand Action every or town. to Everytown or to uh, Americans for Responsible Solutions. There was nowhere to plug in at that point, OFA. But that really was not, you know, uh, the political f force that it needed to be. So 
as 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 February turns into March, all of a sudden, you know, the phone calls on the other side start to drop off, and all you're left with is this massive NRA gun lobby organization, and it's starting to make a difference. And your constituency is also different because you're talking to the families, and I'm wondering how often you reached out to the Newtown families, and how did you manage their expectations? And they must have had some ex- expectation that this that their tragedy meant something that was going to produce some legislation that was meaningful and i'm wondering if you had to manage their expectations their positivity in a way and also you must have felt in some ways maybe guilty for the process taking so long and that yeah no it's it i think you need to remember that there's a wide variety of right experience from these families the majority of these families were not involved in the legislative uh, initiative in part because as you can imagine there's no way to be an advocate and manage that grief at the same time. So there's a smaller handful of families that are um, coming down to Washington that are involved, other first responders, um, lots of other Newtown families whose kids weren't killed but were in the school. Um, No, and I remember – this is skipping a little bit ahead, but just in terms of of how hard this was to manage. um, I remember – uh, we Obama came back up at some point, and and on the way back down, he flew with us, the delegation, and all the family. Um, and it was at that point that we told them that we were trying to rescue that that assault weapons was was not happening. That we that all we could get was um, the background checks bill. This must have been in March or. Uh, early April, um, you know, weeks before the vote. And I remember that being really awful and the look of shock on their faces uh, as they realized that, you know, all we were going to get out of this was a background checks bill. Let's talk about Obama uh, as well. Um, As this process is playing out, he goes and gives his State of the Union speech, um, sort of famously saying they demand, you know, they deserve a vote, right? You were in the chamber, I presume. Mm -hmm. What was the mood like for you watching that? I, I mean... It was difficult. I mean, this is an era, right, in which Republicans have decided that anything Barack Obama is for, they are going to be against. And he did. I mean, to his credit, he took ownership for uh, of this issue, um, both from a policy standpoint and rhetorically. Um, he was our, our, our leader. Um, Joe Manchin eventually sort of took that over. But, you know, if we had to do it over again, right, should Joe Manchin have been the leader from the beginning? Should Barack Obama have taken a back seat? I don't know. Um, but it became a very partisan issue in part because Republicans had at that point decided that anything this guy was going to champion, we were going to be against. And so, you know, in that... In did that, you talk to him about when you when you were with the president? Did you mention that at all? No, I, di- I didn't. Um, I didn't. In, I, I mean, what I guess do you say? A lot of this, off, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, a lot of this is in retrospect. And I'm not sure, listen, I, I'm not sure that that would have changed um, anything. Um, and that's the Republicans' fault, not Barack Obama's fault. He's the president. He's supposed to lead. He's not supposed to take a backseat on the. But most were there conversations issues. with him about strategy, about what to do? And if you remember, uh, Biden's sort of leading the process at that point. He's doing a lot of the meetings. So a lot of my <clears throat> strategic conversations were with uh, were with Biden. And Biden is a Senate operator, right? So my sure. conversations with Biden are about individual senators and conversations he can have, and what's most influential with this senator. Um, I did not have conversations at that point with Obama at that level of strategic detail. Who were the senators that he was sort of focusing on? 
Well, moving. I, yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it was it was the conservative Democrats. It was at the point, you know, people um, uh, like Landrew and um, Shaheen and Warner and Bennett and Tester and um, you know those folks that we thought we could we could get that he had relationships with. It was McCain who was really important at that point, right? Keeping McCain on board. This was a time when we felt like if we held McCain, we could get a foothold into the Republican uh, conference. Holding on to a few moderate Republicans like McCain was absolutely crucial. Some of the Senate's most conservative Democrats were almost certain to oppose the bill. And so Murphy and his allies were going to need to make up some extra votes. As it turned out, the Republican who ended up being most essential here was a Pennsylvania senator named Pat Toomey. Toomey may have done this because... You know, he made a decision that politically this was a smart move for him to make. I, I, I don't doubt there was. He's a, from Pennsylvania. He's, from Pen- he's up for election in suburban Pennsylvania. Is a place that you know is going to is going to really respond to this. Um, Joe Manchin had no political reason to do this. Manchin, who Murphy just referred to there, is a Democratic senator from West Virginia. He and Pat Toomey emerge as sort of the bipartisan face of the background checks bill. As Murphy just explained, there were some good political reasons why Pat Toomey might have felt it would be advantageous to sign on. But Joe Manchin really had nothing to gain. Now let me explain that. Joe Manchin is basically the central casting archetype for a pro-gun Democrat. He's from West Virginia, of course, and you don't get elected there as a Democrat if you're not pro-gun. But Manchin actually put out an ad during the 2010 midterms in which he literally shoots a bill he opposes. And I'll take dead aim at the cap-and-trade bill. And in other ads, even when he's not actually shooting at legislation, he tends to make sure he's pictured holding a rifle at some point or another. He had an A grade from the NRA, all of which made his reaction to Sandy Hook surprising. Uh, has this changed everything? Andrew, it's changed me. Uh, and I don't think there's a West Virginian that I know, and not a person living in my state that hasn't been moved by this horrific crime against our children. Joe Manchin was emotionally moved in a way that almost I, in which I saw no other senator become emotionally moved, right? Joe kept pictures of those kids in his conference room during the entirety of that debate or in his lobby somewhere. I mean, you walked in, I remember, and you saw pictures of every single one of these kids. Um, and Joe just literally got up every day thinking to himself, how am I going to do something for these families? Um, and in his mind, do it in a way that the gun lobby could live with, right? So um, he's so so he kept me apprised that that Toomey was a prospect, but they were trying to build a piece of legislation that the gun lobby would support. And and something that's lost on on us in retrospect is that. Up until that day, they thought they had it, right? They were trying to negotiate a bill with the NRA, the Manchin-Toomey legislation. Eventually, the NRA pulls their support. But when they release it in their press conference, they think they have the NRA's support, which they eventually don't. Um, We have an agreement on an amendment to prevent criminals and the mentally ill and insane from getting firearms and harming people. That's extremely important for all of us. And so it was an amazing negotiation between, you know, Toomey and, and Manchin and the NRA that, you know, Toomey still, whatever reason he, he did it, it still has a the, lot of credit. In, reminded me, what was the NRA sticking point with the final bill? So, well, 
I don't. I don't actually. I don't know. I don't think there. I don't think we know what their sticking point was. You know, there's a lot of. It was the re- gun registry? It's the gun registry, but there's a ban on the gun registry yeah. in the bill. There's an explicit ban on the gun registry. You could go um, to jail. You if could you right if you right right. And remember, there's and, and what's lost in Mansion to me is that there's a lot of good stuff for the gun industry. Right there, are actually. Um, you know, places in that bill that weaken gun laws, right? So for instance, there's a 72-hour rule right now where if you don't hear from the background check system, you have to wait 72 hours. That bill, Manchin Toomey, um, takes that back to 24 hours. So you can sell a gun if you don't hear from the background check system within 24 hours. So it, it's just representative of the fact that that bill was was ultimately a negotiation. And that was Pat Toomey's price. I mean, let's, you know, Pat gets a lot of credit, but his price in the end was a bill that in many ways rolled back gun protections. So this is being proposed. Uh, the assault weapons ban is very clear is not going to pass. It goes to a vote anyway. It doesn't get through. Same with the um, higher capacity magazine uh, limits. But when did it become clear to you that even background checks was going to come up short? Um, probably when we lost Jeff Flake. The bill suffered a setback when Republican Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona announced his opposition in a Facebook post. Uh, there, we do need to strengthen the background check system, uh, but universal background checks, uh, I think, is a bridge too far for most of us. Why, we why knew we needed we needed to go deeper into into the Republicans because we never we were never I didn't know which were Democrats we were going to get we were never going to get all, every Democrat so I knew we needed to get deeper into Republicans and you know Jeff deserves his reputation as someone who is thoughtful who is willing to buck his party's leadership and um, Jeff had had so many meetings with these families or representatives of the families that had gone very well um, I thought Jeff was. Um, to me, a bellwether um, of, of the kind of Republican we needed to get. Um, and, um, and when Jeff came out and announced that he was going to vote, and I had conversations with Jeff, um, so I had put a lot of time into that uh, because we came in in the same class together. When we lost Jeff, um, I knew that we were not going to get enough Republicans. Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska also announced yesterday that she will not support the mansion Toomey background checks legislation. Two other Republicans, Senators McCain and Ayotte, are reportedly on the fence. Come on, guys. Why put the bill to a vote if you knew it was going to fail? You know, I, I, I've been a part of enough winning legislative fights um, that were predicated upon losing votes that put pressure on people um, and, and gave targets for outside organizations um, that I thought that it was important. I, I also – there was no way not to have that debate, right? There was no way for the families not to feel like they had gotten a chance. I mean to just sort of tell them, trust me. The votes aren't there um, uh, would have been unsustainable, uh, and um, you know I think history will 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 judge our strategy to be to be right. I mean I do think that ultimately um, I, I, Kelly Ayotte's not here because of because we forced that vote. I mean I, and and um, there, and I think there will be other legislators who have been forced to take votes on these issues, like the terrorist loophole that ultimately will lose their fa- uh, races because of it. I think you, um, in the Politico's uh, podcast that you did, you why were, are you plugging a competing podcast, yeah, Jason? Yeah. <laughs> because I'm just I'm being edit, fair. Edit that out. Fair to brush. Let's start the question all over again. Go ahead. You had suggested in in, in a previous uh, interview that uh, 
that the 94 assault weapons vote was a, that the effect of that vote in decimating Democrats was a myth. That that Democrats were sort of spooked by that and never came back to the issue or had trouble coming back to that issue. Why do you think it's a myth? We uh, earlier on another podcast interview did an interview with a, a rep who lost because of that. He claims he lost because of his vote on that bill. So I'm wondering why you think it's a myth and well, I, I, why I, Democrats I, need to get over that. Yeah, I think it's a myth because if because of all the other things that were happening in 1994. First of all, you had a very unpopular incumbent president in his first midterm election, right? That alone tends to tell only one story, which is that the incumbent party is going to lose a lot of seats. Second, you had the health care bill, right, which at that point had become uh, a big issue uh, for uh, Democrats. Um, the, the crime bill happened very late in that year when um, you know, there were already a lot of things running uh, against Democrats. The ads that were run, if you remember, were sort of the morphing ads of uh, Democratic candidates becoming Bill Clinton. Um, he was much more the, the face of that race than any one issue was. Um, and I, I, I think if you um, if you look at the seats that we lost, they were pretty generically the seats that were always going to be hard for Democrats in a year like that, um, not the specific seats where members took uh, the wrong vote on the assault weapons uh, ban. So um, I just think that history tells you that race, that, that that election was much more complex. Yeah, for some members, was it not helpful? Yeah, absolutely. But there were a lot of other things happening in Did 94. Did the debt 94 vote come up in your discussions with Democrats? Yeah, absolutely. No, because I think what the NRA did very effectively after that- Mythologized. Yeah, right. They sort of, you know, they 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 mythologized it. They told a story about why it was the defining vote, and people ultimately, and then believed it in part because Bill Clinton said it. If you remember it, Bill Clinton said that that was the reason. Uh, in part because I don't think that Bill Clinton wanted it to be about him personally, and he didn't want it to be about the broader issue of health care, which would be an indictment of a sort of basic Democratic Party priority. So he um, e- either. In his in ninety five ninety six, but sometime after, there's a famous Bill Clinton quote where he identifies that as it's, a reason. It's interesting because, like, well, you, we brought up the Wayne LaPierre speech, but actually, maybe it was this the NRA's ability to sort of mythologize their own power as a way of spooking members. Well, and and so I spent a lot of my time in early two thousand and thirteen. Um, trying to take on this mythology. So so I do my my deep dive into why we're gonna, not going to get this passed. And I realize it's because people have an outsized fear of the NRA and an outsized um, fear of what happened in 94. So I start issuing reports every single week um, about the NRA and about how they are a paper tiger. And I do this analysis of uh, of their electoral power um, where you know I come to a pretty well-researched conclusion that actually the NRA loses a lot more races than they win, that if they put money into your seat, it actually has no connection to whether you're going to win it or lose it. Um, and and listen, I, I failed in that in that effort, but I tried to show my colleagues that this wasn't somebody something to fear, in part because, as I said before, what I maybe didn't realize was that it's really not about what the NRA does specifically. It's about how the NRA over time became an, um, a verifier for your broader set of conservative credentials. If you had your the brand. NRA stamp, stamp of approval, then you were a true conservative. Um, and even if they didn't spend a ton of money in your race, that endorsement mattered. What did you um, learn about yourself as a, as a politician uh, and as a person uh, from the start to the finish of this, although we're not finished? You know, I um, I can't say that I wasn't 
you know, emotionally connect to an issue before this. But, you know, I found a passion and a, and a drive um, and a reason to jump out of bed every morning on this issue that I hadn't had before. You know, I'd had a pretty successful political career and I had some big legislative successes, um, you know, before this, especially, you know, my time in the state legislature. Um, but, uh, you know, this was, this was an issue that, um, you know, all of a sudden seemed to define my career, right? That, that, that I um, realized that I was not going to consider myself a success um, in public service if I didn't deliver on something here. And that still scares the hell out of me, right? I mean, I'm now, you know, four years into the Senate and I have not delivered any meaningful federal legislative success on this issue. Um, and to the extent that I'll run for re-election, it's in part because, you know, boy, I just can't imagine hanging up my spikes and having to sit down with Neil Heslin um, or Mark Barden or whomever and tell them, yeah, I didn't get it done. Um, so, you know, this is – it's different now. I mean everything it, – it, it, it just – it all feels different. When's the last time you talked to Neil? I talked to Neil pretty regularly. Um, I talked to him on the phone uh, recently about a, uh, a friend that he wanted me to help. But the last time I saw Neil was at the opening of the new Sandy Hook Elementary School. And you read his testimony back, I think, every year. Every Father's Day. And you said that you had it basically memorized. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've done it. I mean, I've, I read it on my own uh, a whole bunch of times. And um, yeah, I've now sort of made a practice of on Father's Day or whatever day of sessions closest to Father's Day going down and reading Neil's testimony. Um, he reminds people at one portion in his testimony um, that Jesse was studying civics and government in school and that he and Je Jesse and I were planning a trip down to Washington, D.C. Jesse wanted to learn about you. He believed in you, right? Um, and I want to believe in you. He said before he died, Jesse and I used to talk about maybe coming to Washington someday. He wanted to go up to the Washington Monument. When we talked about it last year, Jesse asked if we could come and meet the president because Jesse believed in you. He learned about you in school and he believed in you. And I want to believe in you too. I know you can't give me Jesse back. Believe me, if I thought you could, I'd be asking for that. But I want to believe that you will think about what I told you here today. I want to believe that you'll think about it and you'll do something about it. Whatever you can do to make sure that no other father has to see what I've seen. This episode was produced and edited by Zach Young and comes from season two of our podcast, Candidate Confessional. You can listen to both seasons in their entirety now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we'll be back with a new episode of I'm Still Here. I'm Still Here is a HuffPost podcast produced and edited by Nick Offenberg and Jessica Samacow. I'm Ziba Blay. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, leave a rating and review, or send us an email. Tell us your story of survival. Still here at HuffPost.com. On the next episode of I'm Still Here. This is one of the worst race-based, religious-based, ethnic-based hate attacks that happened in 50 years by a known affiliated white supremacist. And this guy wasn't a sympathizer. He wasn't a lone wolf. He was affiliated. You know, that, that kind of scale not only speaks to this incident, but speaks to the state of the country is in. Mm -hmm.